Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, and the end of week 49 of the Russia-Ukraine War. It's been 3,262 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 343 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine War. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that the battle for control of Bakhmut has reached a critical phase with the addition of Russian forces to the Axis and the ongoing attempt to create a technical encirclement. Second, we concur with recent assessments by other analysts that it is highly likely the Russian Federation will launch a new offensive before February 24th to try and deliver a tactical victory before the anniversary of the wide-scale invasion of Ukraine. Third, we maintain that the significant increase in disinformation and misinformation from Russian sources is being directed by Chief of the General Staff of the Russian Federation Armed Forces, Valery Gerasimov, as part of his hybrid warfare doctrine. Fourth, the RAND Corporation agreed with our assessment that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative while we maintain the exception for the Solidar-Bakhmut axis. Fifth, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine remains combat ineffective and is relying on World War II tactics that Field Marshal Georgi Zhukov would recognize to move the line of conflict. Sixth, we maintain that the power struggle between military leaders aligned with Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu versus those aligned with private military company or PMC Wagner Group head Yevgeny Prigozhin is continuing, and Russian President Vladimir Putin is the largest benefactor. Seventh, we maintain that punitive missile and drone strikes targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue. Eighth, we maintain that Russian forces will continue to target electrical, heating, and potable water infrastructure. Ninth, We maintain that the Russian Federation's inventory of caliber cruise missiles is critically low 
based on the continued decline of launches from the Black Sea Fleet. Tenth, we maintain there is a risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction. Eleventh, we assess that stealth mobilization has started in the Russian Federation due to stop-loss orders for active-duty troops deployed in Ukraine and mobilization requests from the Kremlin in the occupied territories. And finally, we assess that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine as part of an offensive operation is negligible. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. On the Svatova axis, Russian forces tried to push Ukrainian troops out of Novoselivske and were unsuccessful. On the Kremina axis, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported Chervonopopivka was shelled throughout the day. The GSAFU also reported that Ukrainian positions in the area of Kremina were shelled, while the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, Joint Center for Control and Coordination, or JCCC, reported that Ukrainian forces shelled Kremina. South and southwest of Dibrova, mercenaries with Rybar reported there was positional fighting in the Serebriansky woods, while the GSAFU reported Dibrova was shelled. Mercenaries with Wargonzo claimed Russian forces had recaptured Dibrova, which we found odd because a series of videos on January 27th and 28th already indicated that Russian forces were west of the village. The Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, reported continued fighting in the region. On the Siversk axis, Russian forces continued attacks on Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, without changing the situation. Russian-occupied Kadyevka was struck by at least two rockets fired by HIMARS, according to the LNR-JCCC. Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, Serhii Haidai, said during a television interview yesterday that Russian forces were preparing for an offensive push. The GSAFU has been hinting an offensive push was coming in this region, and the claims took a life of their own in the social media space. It was reported that a localized offensive started late on January 31st, led by the 76th Guards Air Assault Division, or VDV, in a matter of hours. Some assessment here. While there was an increase in artillery activity yesterday, it was not indicative of a major offensive operation to advance on a broad front back into Donetsk. The GSAFU did report that the area of Yampil was shelled, but there isn't a viable ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, toward Dibrova from the village. Our team hasn't seen evidence of condition setting that you'd see before a major offensive, including supply interdiction, remote mining of G-locks, and significant suppress-and-destroy enemy air defense activity. Further, the 76th VDV has suffered repeated losses since March 2022 in Bucha and Irpin, Izum and Davidi Breed, and is not at full strength. We believe this is a localized effort meant to take pressure off Kremina, and Ukrainian forces are prepared for this push. In northeast Donetsk on the Kremina axis, Russian forces led by the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, 
continued attempts to advance in the direction of Yampolivka, according to the GSAFU. The Russian MOD did not report fighting in the area, but claimed that Russian forces shelled the settlement. On the Siversk axis, fighting east of Spirna intensified, with the GSAFU reporting a Russian attack was repulsed, while a Russian source claimed Ukrainian forces were attempting to move east toward the T-1302 highway. The situation was stable on the Solidar axis after Russian Mobix and VDV forces supported by PMC Wagner made territorial gains on January 30th. Fighting continued near Vasyukivka with no change in the situation. The Russian MOD claimed that Blahodatne was captured, and regular listeners may wonder, hold up, didn't they claim that over a week ago? And didn't PMC Wagner claim it on January 28th? Yes. The Russian MOD once again minimized PMC Wagner's role, writing that, quote, volunteers of assault detachments, end quote, supported by Russian troops captured the village without mentioning the PMC. Oh my God, they're so petty. Fighting continued for control of Krasnohora, with Ukrainian forces holding their defensive positions. On the Bakhmut axis, fighting continued on the city's northern and eastern edges. The composite forces of Russian troops and PMC Wagner continued attempts to advance on Paraskovivka, with Ukrainian forces maintaining their defensive lines. In separate incidents, Russian shelling killed two civilians in Bakhmut, a 70-year-old and a 12-year-old. There are graphic pictures that are not suitable for work and some may find them disturbing, but as with most of the photos and videos we reference on the podcast, we do link to them in our full situation report on Patreon. Residents of Donetsk were ordered to evacuate in early August and had to sign a waiver of self-responsibility if they refused to leave. It's estimated that around 6,500 civilians remain in the city, which was once home to 70,000 people. The remaining people are civil servants, such as firefighters, stubborn pensioners born and raised in the area, the disabled and poor who believe they have nowhere to go, and pro-Russians who passively await what they believe will be a better life. Our assessment here is unchanged from yesterday, and we believe that the siege of Bakhmut has reached a critical phase. We do not assess that Bakhmut is at imminent risk of encirclement or that Ukrainian forces will be pushed out of the city in the short term. On the Kostyantanivka axis, the situation was unchanged. The most intense fighting in Ukraine was west and north of Klishivka, with Ukrainian forces holding defensive lines at the canal to the west and two and a half to three kilometers south of Ivanivsk. On the Toretsk axis, Orgonzo claimed that Russian forces attempted an advance toward the Lievka. Geolocated video confirmed Orgonzo's reports that Russian forces in Kurdyumivka were heavily shelled. The third segment in the short video shows a Russian ammunition depot and command post being destroyed just outside of Zelenopilia. In southwest Donetsk, there was only positional fighting across the region. On the Avdiivka axis, elements of the Russian 1st Army Corps attempted another frontal attack on Ukrainian positions in Avdiivka after several days of periodic intense shelling. It went about as well as the previous 100-plus attempts since February 24th, 
which is to say it didn't go well at all. Ukrainian forces repelled attacks on Vodyana and Pervomaiske. On the Marinka axis, the self-declared leader of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, Denis Pushlin, made new claims that Marinka would be captured soon, which weren't at all based in fact. That did not prevent Russian mill bloggers from amplifying his report. Another video appeared of a Russian tank operating in the rubble of Marinka, firing on Ukrainian positions in the city's center. On the Uhlidar axis, the Russian offensive toward the city and the northwest corner of Pavlivka remained stalled out for a second day. The GSAFU reported that the Mikilske dachas were shelled, reinforcing reports that the Russian 155th Naval Infantry and the 11th Motor Infantry Brigade were pushed across the Kashlahach River. A Russian video recorded on the first day of the assault was released and geolocated, showing Ukrainian positions in northwest Pavlivka being hit by a TOS-1A multiple launch rocket system, or MLRS, providing additional confirmation that Ukrainian forces held the northern part of the village before Russia launched the Uhlidar offensive. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Khodakovsky of the 11th Motor Infantry Brigade expressed frustration over the situation and slow progress on his Telegram channel, writing, quote, Maybe it's time to return to talking about tactical nuclear weapons, end quote. Sidebar, other situations in which Khodakovsky probably thinks tactical nuclear weapons might be appropriate include when losing a football match, when the previews at the beginning of the movie last longer than 10 minutes, and when the Starbucks barista spells his name Oleksandr. Insurgents in Mariupol reported several loud explosions over the left-bank region of the city, with Russian officials claiming it was air defense activity. Quick assessment. While Mariupol is technically within range of HIMARS, it would require bringing a launcher to the line of conflict. Ukraine has been pretty risk-averse with bringing M142, M270, Mars-2, and LRU equipment close to an active front. In an indication that Russian forces are concerned about missile and airstrikes on Mariupol, insurgents shared videos of Buk-1 air defense systems being brought into the city. It was reported that air defense was set up near the city port, which is still closed, and the new helicopter forward operating base, or FOB, at Azovstal. Self-declared DNR leader Pushilin said that the Don-Donbass pipeline— meant to bring drinking water to all occupied territories, won't be able to meet the intended goal. Due to the deplorable state of the region's limited water infrastructure, engineers estimate that 40% of the water brought from the Don River will be lost due to corruption leaks. Pushilin also finally admitted that Ukrainian pensioners living in the occupied territories had not received promised pension payments from the Russian Federation. Some have gone without for seven to eight months, with no other income source. Pushlin promised that their pensions would be, quote, recalculated by March 1st. Phone calls from Donetsk to Luhansk between regional carriers will now be treated as long distance and will cost six rubles per minute, while remaining free if someone calls from Luhansk to Donetsk. If you're not sure what a long-distance call is, Find someone born in the mid to late 1980s or earlier and they can explain. 
You should bring a homemade mixtape as a peace offering. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to Zaporizhia. Well, it's the second day of the Zaporizhia section, and the second day without any reports of ground combat or major activity. So let's move on to the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported the Black Sea fleet had 12 ships on patrol, including three missile carriers, two surface vessels, and a kilo-class submarine, capable of launching up to 20 caliber cruise missiles. In the first report of its kind from Crimea since February 24th, the insurgency has turned violent. The Atesh movement, formed in September 2022 in response to the wide-scale invasion of Ukraine, claimed responsibility for ambushing a car on the highway between Sevastopol and Simferopol, killing two Russian military officers. In Odessa, the newly formed Ukrainian 11th Brigade of the National Guard was deployed. The unit was created to track and intercept Shahed-136 kamikaze drones and subsonic cruise missiles, with unit members demonstrating their World War II-style searchlights. In Mykolaiv, Ochakiv was attacked with S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack, striking residential areas and damaging a city administration building. Russian forces fired anti-aircraft guns in the direction of Kutsurub, with munitions falling short on the beach areas, causing no damage. In western and central Ukraine, in Kherson, Russian and Ukrainian forces continued mutual shelling across the Dnipro River. Russian forces launched 42 fire missions on Free Ukraine, targeting the city of Kherson eight times, killing one and wounding another. Ukrainian forces conducted another amphibious-based reconnaissance mission near Russian-occupied Kholopristan. Our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal, Kremlin pariah, Wagner target, and failed Mobik, Igor Girkin-Strelkov, wrote it was a small force of six to eight soldiers, and not a large assault as some other Russian social media channels claimed. The GSAFU reported that five repurposed civilian motorboats with Russian DRG troops were destroyed in the network of marshy islands at the mouth of the Dnipro River. No additional information was provided. In north and northeast Ukraine, in Sumy, five Hromadas, including Shostka, Krasnopilia, Yunakivka, Seredina Buda, and Bilopilia, were hit by mortars, missiles, and shells, and were attacked by drone-delivered IEDs. A business was struck in Shostka by an S-300 missile used for a ground attack, wounding two. More than 20 mortars were fired at Krasnopilia from across the international border. On the Russian front, local reports from the Bilgorod Federal District reported air defense was active over the city, with local officials reporting two, quote, objects were shot down. Despite poor weather, work on the Kerch Bridge went according to plan on January 30th, with the fourth section of the replacement bridge moved into place. Additional closures are planned in February to add the road deck, 
with partial repairs of the road bridge slated to be completed in March 2023. Once done, the bridge will only support car and bus traffic. Fog suspended service on the Kerch Strait Ferry, complicating transit to Russian-occupied Crimea due to the bridge closure for construction. Russian President Bunker Grandfather, sorry, Vladimir Putin, signed a decree striking the requirement to review the yellow terror alert status every 15 days and giving himself the power to keep the alert level indefinitely. The Russian leader signed a second decree permitting the random searches of any vehicle without cause operating in an area under the yellow terror alert status. How convenient. Nationalists welcomed the news, while residents in Crimea cautiously asked on social media if this meant the yellow alert would go on forever. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Ukraine announced it was creating 25 new rifle battalions, one from each oblast and one each from Kyiv and Dnipro. A quick note. While Ukraine does have 24 oblasts, Crimea is under total Russian occupation, which kind of prevents battalion formation. Each battalion will have 601 members, 449 soldiers, 105 non-commissioned officers, and 47 officers. The units will be comprised of volunteers, reservists, and conscripts. The United States Treasury Department reported there was no evidence that U.S. funds are being misused in Ukraine. Megan Apper, spokesperson for the Treasury Department, said, quote, We have no indications that U.S. funds have been misused in Ukraine. We welcome the ongoing efforts of the Ukrainian authorities to work with us to ensure appropriate safeguards are in place that U.S. assistance reaches those for whom it is intended. End quote. An unnamed U.S. official said that, quote, there has been no serious high-level discussion about F-16s, end quote. When asked after U.S. President Joe Biden gave a curt no to the question on January 30th. Later in the day, Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer said the U.S. would discuss fighter jets for Ukraine, quote, very carefully with Kyiv and its allies. Days after an Iranian ammunition factory experienced a smoking incident and accusations that Israel was behind the strike, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the Israeli government was studying other options to support Ukraine beyond humanitarian aid. American weapons manufacturer General Atomics offered two Reaper MQ-9 combat drones to Ukraine for one dollar, according to a report in the Wall Street Journal. Now, Ukraine would still need to spend $10 million to prepare the drones for shipment and around $8 million yearly for maintenance and service. The United States government would have to approve the transfer, and the White House didn't comment on the proposal made by CEO of General Atomics, Lyndon Blue. French Minister of Defense, Sébastien Lecornu, announced that Paris was transferring 12 more Caesar 155mm self-propelled howitzers to Ukraine. On January 19th, we estimated the maximum number of tanks Ukraine would receive after the Rammstein Working Group meeting on January 20th was 165, and we expected the final number to be lower. Dmitry Kuleba, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, 
reported that the first wave of main battle tanks from NATO nations would number between 120 to 140, not including 10 French AMX-10 RC light tanks, or armored scout vehicles or tank destroyers, which are expected to enter service in Ukraine in the coming days. The United States is expected to announce a new military aid package for Ukraine, valued between 2 and $2.2 billion. Up to $1.725 billion in funds is earmarked for the purchase of ground-launch small-diameter bombs, or GLSDBs, which have a range of 150 kilometers and are delivered using M142, M270, Mars-2, and LRU-guided multiple launch rocket systems, or GMLRS, more commonly known as HIMARS. The GLSDB has almost double the range and flies like a cruise missile, with an accuracy of plus or minus one meter. Foundationally, the GLSDB uses the MK-81 120-kilogram small-diameter bomb and M-26 rocket, which the United States already has a large supply of, and turns them into a 227-millimeter rocket with foldable wings. You can read more information about GLSDB in a special report we have available on our Patreon. Speaking of bombs, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Well, we know someone is destined for the front in Ukraine. On Russian state media, a Kremlin spokesperson let it slip that since February 24th, 50% of all Russian VDV forces have been killed or permanently disabled in combat. Well, so long, Kremlin spokesperson. Don't hesitate to use that surrender hotline. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's very brief report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Denise Brown, United Nations resident coordinator in Ukraine, believes that a physical inspection of the Olenivka prison camp to investigate the death of 54 Ukrainian POWs in an explosion could still happen. However, it's unclear how that would happen, with the UN mission disbanded in December and the International Committee of the Red Cross, or ICRC, still blocked from accessing the site. In geopolitical news, Former president of Georgia, Mikhail Saakashvili, was transferred from prison to a hospital, where he is in critical condition. Saakashvili's supporters allege he was poisoned in prison and became critically ill after catching COVID-19, which was inadequately treated. Georgia's application to join the economic bloc would be automatically dismissed without further consideration. Austria and Hungary formed an alliance after Archduke Franz Ferdinand... Nope. No, sorry. Wrong century. Sorry, my bad. Sorry. Austria and Hungary formed an alliance and agreed not to send weapons to Ukraine, Austrian Defense Minister Claudia Tanner and her Hungarian counterpart Krzysztof Soloy Bobrovnitsky said at a meeting in Budapest. Tanner opened her mouth and inserted her foot when she said the biggest danger is that, quote, the war could spread to Europe, end quote. Okay, so quick question. Isn't Ukraine on the European continent? Or has there been, like, some kind of reorganization that I wasn't aware of? 
In our January 8th and 9th interview with former Estonian President Tomas Hendrik Ilves, he talks about how Eastern European nations are perceived as the, quote, little ones by Western European leaders, despite the fact that Ukraine is physically massive. While both nations pledged to support Ukrainian refugees and Austria extended registration for displaced peoples for another year, Hungary has registered 46. Last week, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban told journalists in Budapest that he believed that Ukraine couldn't win the war and is as unmanageable as Afghanistan. Hungarian ambassador to Kyiv, Istvan Idyarto, was going through some things after the foreign ministry summoned him. In a released statement, the ministry said, quote, It was emphasized to the Hungarian diplomat that the anti-Ukrainian rhetoric, which has been heard from the Hungarian leadership for a long time, is absolutely unacceptable and causes serious damage to Ukrainian-Hungarian relations. The Hungarian side was urged to stop this negative trend in order to avoid irreparable consequences for the relations between the two countries. End quote. Czech Republic president-elect and former NATO Secretary-General Petr Pavel said that Ukraine should be automatically entered into NATO at the end of the Russia-Ukraine war, saying, quote, The Ukrainian army will probably be the most experienced army in Europe. Ukraine deserves to be part of the community of democratic countries. End quote. In economic news, Roman Abramovich is closing the sale of the Chelsea FC British Football Club, that's soccer for our U.S. American listeners, for an estimated $3 billion. Abramovich has pledged to transfer all proceeds to provide humanitarian aid to Ukrainians. The announcement has sparked a torrent of anti-Semitic rage on Russian social media channels and accusations that Abramovich is a traitor. Russian citizens completely freaked out when they thought Russia or the United States had blocked their access to the primarily subscription-based nudes and pornography available on OnlyFans. A few hours later, OnlyFans announced that blocking Russian IP addresses was an error and access was restored. Kremlin nuclear forces stood down and there was much rejoicing for the articles. The ruble ticked upward with an exchange rate of 70 for one U.S. dollar. Western oil prices also climbed upward, with WTI crude reaching $79 a barrel and Brent creeping up to $86. Russian Ural's crude fell with an official price of $56 a barrel. United States wholesale Arbob gasoline on the spot market rebounded a dime, climbing to $2.57 a gallon, or $0.68 a liter. Dutch TTF natural gas futures dropped, with March 2023 falling to €57 per megawatt hour, and April 2023 futures trading at €58. Chicago SRW wheat futures were volatile, reaching $7.66 a bushel for March 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.